Hey Carson, why does an indecisive person have trouble buying guitars? Uh, I don't know. Why? They have a hard time picking. <laughs> that was pretty bad. And you gave Scott crap for his joke. I did not. <laughs> I give you crap for yours. Okay, fair enough. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson. And I'm Haley. And welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists he'll never be able to play like. And topics or tips about guitars and music recording. Now, I know that we already did an episode on the history of Sun, but since as of August 1st, the Sun Revival has been talking about everything they plan to do with the brand, today's episode is largely going to focus on the revival of Sun and what we can expect to see there. But before this, we've got some other news to talk about. Let's get into it. Marshall just released the JTM Studio, its first major product since it was taken over by Zounds. But who is Zounds? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, remember quite a while ago, I want to say it was like three or four years ago now, when those Marshall branded like Bluetooth speakers that look like miniature amplifiers and then eventually headphones started uh, cropping up in places like Best Buy? Yeah. Zounds is actually a Swedish company that partnered with Marshall and was responsible for those releases. So a couple months ago, Zounds actually took control of Marshall, a little bit of a strange form of acquisition, if you ask me. Normally you'd expect it to be the other way around, right? Yeah. Marshall is a pretty big company, and Zounds, all they really do, other than these Marshall-branded things, are make, like, athletic sort of wireless earbuds and headphones and things like that. Definitely uh, not what I would expect. Now, any kind of takeover can always create some worry. I mean, you remember when uh, when Court bought Digitech and I panic bought a whammy? Yeah, of course I remember that. Well, I mean, anytime there's any sort of corporate takeover, stuff changes hands, you can expect worry, especially, I, know, I don't know how many people were up in arms when Gibson bought Mesa, but... This first new product that they've made since the takeover actually pays homage to an original Marshall amplifier, the very first one, the JTM. There have already been a few different JTM reissues, but this one features quite a few key differences. So to start off, let's talk about the features that are the same. For the inputs, there's four total, two high-end inputs and two low-end inputs to allow for channel bridging like you could on the original. What's channel bridging? It was a unique thing that you could do with these two input, two channel amplifiers. So overall, you had four inputs on the front panel of the amp. And essentially what you'd do is you'd patch the high and the low channels together by plugging into one channel, then using the free input of that same channel and a patch cable to connect to an input of the other channel, getting you both of the sounds of the high input and the low input. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. My Origin 20 here is actually capable of it with something they call the tilt control. Now the Origin 20 only actually has one input, but the tilt control allows the same functionality with blending the two channel sounds together. For example, here's what your normal input would sound like on its own. 
Why does it sound so low? Well, that's actually the design of these older amplifiers. They had two separate channels in order to account for the differences in instruments. So one of them was very low, say if you had like a sort of ice-picky, very high trebly guitar. Um, something that comes to mind is like the steel resonator guitars that national instrument companies made. And then you had a high input for something that might have had humbuckers and was very dark and very bassy and needed that extra boost. For example, here's what the bright input on one of those amplifiers would sound like. sounds a lot noisier and higher. Yeah, 100%. It was the high input. But neither of those really sounds dead on to like what a Marshall should sound like. I mean, for these demos, I was trying to go with a sort of ACDC tone. I even went against my normal rule of using my uh, Fernandez Ravel and I use my SG because it just Ooh. felt right. But when we blend both of those together, you'll hear how it's that quintessential classic Marshall tone. So here's what it sounds like if you were to patch those bright input and low input channels together. It's not that kind of segment, but the third demo definitely sounded a lot better than the first two. 100%. I mean, that's a trick that's been used since this amplifier's inception. People have always been bridging inputs like that because it works extremely well. It's that tone that you know and love on countless different records. Now, in terms of the rest of the controls for the JTM Studio, it's exactly like the original with a three-band EQ, a presence knob, and an on and off switch. The tube complement of the amp is two ECC83 preamp tubes, an ECC83 phase splitter, and two 5881 power amp tubes. Great for an amp that has no gain control, as your 5881s will tend to break up a lot quicker than something like 6V6s or EL34s. I don't know if you remember my Bugera G20 up there, but I actually put 5881s in that one when it came stock with EL34s because they break up a lot quicker. That's when we struggled to find the tube shop. Oh, yeah. We went, we went to that tube shop in Orlando. It's called uh, Vacuum Tubes Incorporated. And this dude's shop literally looks like the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but with tubes. And I was telling I was like, hey, I got this guitar amp. I want to put new power amp tubes in it. I want it to be a little more metal friendly. And he's like, yeah, throw 5881s in it. And I don't know if you remember the sound difference, but it was pretty massive. Mm. It broke up a lot quicker. Sounded great. Now the back of this amp is where things start to get interesting. You've got speaker cabinet outputs that can accommodate anything from a 16 ohm cab to a 4 ohm cab, a DI output, and a switchable effects loop. Now it's not clear to us yet 
whether the DI out includes an internal load box like the Origin series does, but that's an extremely useful feature, and I really hope they include it. Thankfully, it does have a power switch that allows you to swap between the full 20 watts of power down to a much more manageable 5 watts for at-home playing and shows at smaller venues. The last key thing that sets it apart is that this thing has the actual look of the original Marshall amplifiers. It's much different than the modern all-black Tolex and cursive font badging that we see on today's Marshalls. That's what I was curious about, if they changed the design at all. Oh yeah, 100%. The current, uh, this Marshall Origin 20 that's sitting next to me, that's like the current sort of Marshall look, but that was the original look back in the day. So they didn't change it outright, they just went back to the original design? Correct. I don't know. I think it looks nice. It sort of reminds me of like, uh, if you're thinking of a movie like, uh, oh, what's the one? You, you ever seen the movie The King's Speech? No. It's, uh, it's about the King of England during World War II. Basically, like, he has a fear of public speaking, can't talk in public, and he hires this speech therapist. But there's constant scenes in that movie of old household radios from World War II because, you know, the king is giving speeches on them. <laughs> But uh, it reminds me of that sort of aesthetic, if that makes sense. Vintage. You know, in so many words, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> in this series, they've got a head, which goes for $1,749, and a combo, which goes for $1,949, along with some 2x12 speaker cabinet options, which include Celestion Creambacks, just like the original. Is that comparable to their the other prices of their products, or is it... A little more expensive because they're like a throwback or? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that it's more expensive. I they're, So Marshall's DSL line is like their budget tube, like all tube amplifier line. And the DSLs can push anywhere from like 700 bucks to I think they top out around two grand, but I'm not sure. And some of their other lines like the... Uh, the JCM line, especially JCM 800s and JCM 900s, they push up to like two grand, three grand. So I would say for its brand and its feature set, it's probably on par considering it is built in England, hand built in the UK. And I know labor is definitely going to factor into the cost there. But I'd say it's just about on par, just what I'd expect. Maybe a little cheaper than I thought it would come in at for something like that. I imagine that'd be another worry with a new company acquiring them. That prices would go up? Yeah, something oh, like yeah. that. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, they gotta make their money back. Now, this next bit of news is actually a piece of personal news, sort of like a talking point, but I thought I'd bring it up either way. I don't normally talk about cheaper pedals on this show. I tend to stay away from them. I mean, I don't think I've had many. You probably know more than I do. Not too many. A few here and, here and there when you get curious, maybe. 100%. I've had some bad experiences with some of those, like, Amazon-only brands, like Kayleen and Donner in the past. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. Instead, I want to talk about giving some older, cheaper, practically unknown pedals a chance. Recently, one of my coworkers traveled to Taiwan. He was actually kind enough knowing that I like guitar stuff, to stop outside a local music store, send me a bunch of pictures, and ask if I wanted anything. They had this old three-knob chorus manufactured by this company called Rock Tech, which, admittedly, before this I'd never heard of. But anyway, I say, you know, why not? It's something completely different that I've never seen before, and the thing looked 
brand new, still in the box with the manual and even an old product catalog from Rocktech. Surprising, considering it's older than both of us. I was getting to that. Oh. <laughs> well. Now, if you guys are anything like me, when you know something new is on the way, you're scouring the internet and YouTube looking for all of the demos you can, and while admittedly there weren't many, it mostly came as like a mixed bag of reviews. I learned that this pedal actually came out during the 1980s, thank you very much, <laughs> and it's compared to the famed Arion SCH1 chorus, one of the classic chorus pedals for a very deep, lush modulation used by artists like James Valentine, Michael Landau, and Stu G. The Arion came out around the same time as the Rock Tech, and the Arion was originally meant to be sort of like a budget competitor to the ever-popular Boss CE2, granted it had an added control. Now the CE2 was one of the most sought-after chorus pedals on the planet, so it sort of looks like this Rock Tech thing was meant to be the budget competitor to the budget competitor. <laughs> as always, as soon as I got it, I had to crack it open. I actually opened it up before I even played it because I was so excited. As you do with everything, every pedal, amp, the Keurig, and the Roomba, just to name a few. Can you fault me? I want to know how they work. I'm worried you're going to break them. <laughs> I'm not going to break them. It's going to be fine. Okay. <laughs> when I open it up, it leads me to believe due to the date codes on the capacitors, that it was actually manufactured sometime in the late 1980s. The circuit is extremely similar to the Arion SEH1, including the same MN3207 and 3102 Bucket Brigade chips, a JRC4558D op amp, and an LM358N to control the LFO. On the exterior, it looks almost exactly the same, save for a lack of a stereo switch and the controls being in the reverse order, plus some different placements for things like the battery compartment. The only thing that makes me a little nervous about this pedal is the fact that it has an entirely plastic enclosure and it's very light, which leads me to be extremely delicate with it. But all in all, it looks like an extremely sound through-hole component build. That thing looks clunky. Well, definitely, but it was the 80s. What wasn't? I wouldn't know I wasn't there. <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> After the circuit bender nerd in me got his fill, I realized that none of this matters if it doesn't sound good. <laughs> so plugging it in, I was extremely impressed. It's got the 80s core sound in spades from a very light modulation like this. something a little more standard. to some really extreme, almost Leslie-esque sounds like the Arion was lauded for. Mm -hmm. 
was it that you had such low expectations going into it with this pedal, or were you genuinely surprised by it? It's hard to say. I mean, anytime you see something like that, especially for me, uh, this is a hard question to answer because I don't want to sit there and be like, well, when I see the used price is $40, I of course think it's crap. But like, I think as humans, we all tend to kind of do that. We do tend to conflate price with actual performance. Or you're just a gear snob. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> That's basically a swear in this house. <laughs> do not ever call me that. Gear snob. I'm mad. I'm mad. I don't You guys can't see my face, but I'm mad now. You're smiling. <laughs> I'm sleeping in the other bedroom tonight. Anyway, um, hard to say. Uh, I honestly didn't really know what to think going into it, but I was very happy with it. I mean, you know that I'm not usually very crazy about chorus. It's one of those effects that I'm just like, eh, whatever. You know, if I use it, I use it. Right. But this is actually pretty unique. I don't know. What do you think about it? So... It seems, it seems like it'd be a pedal for if you're going for something specific, like you want that 80s chorus sound and maybe not much else. Would I be right in thinking that? Oh, 100%. This thing is dripping 80s. <laughs> now, the only thing that I'm not too crazy about with this pedal is the buffer tends to suck tone quite a bit. When the pedal is bypassed, you lose... Uh, appreciable amount of high-end. So if you wanted to use it live, you'd probably want to throw like a loop switcher or something like that in the mix to make sure it stays out of the loop when you're not using it. But as a studio tool, it's 100% usable as long as you're gentle with it. I'm really happy with it, but let's talk about the overall point of all this, the lesson to be learned here. Why are we talking to you guys about some random budget chorus pedal from the 80s? Everyone always looks to find their sound but we're always using the same or clones of the same sets of gear, usually, especially in the modern day. Sometimes reaching back and finding something older, more budget pedal, might give you the results that you're looking for and make your sound jump out from everybody else where you least expect it because you're pulling from a different set of equipment. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, that makes sense. You just get a boss and be like everyone else. <laughs> wow, we know where you stand. <laughs> So, last piece of news is actually going to make up the bulk of this episode. This episode's really just going to be a sort of news thing, I guess. It sounds kind of boring now that I think about it. You were excited about it. Oh yeah, when I was writing this, I was super excited, but just saying, oh yeah, we're going to talk about news the whole time. I don't know, regardless. Uh, I've got another topic planned, but we'll see how long this episode runs us. We probably won't get to it. Probably have to shove it off to the next episode. But it's okay, uh guarantee you I'm going to end up talking way too much about this next piece. Yeah, I'll be I'll be happy if I never hear the word sun come out of your mouth for the next 5 years after this. You talk about them so much. Probably not going to happen. So it's no secret that Sun has been in the works of a relaunch for the past couple of months now. It used to be that Sun's website would take you straight to Fender's website, and then miraculously, while I happened to be doing some research for our Sun episode, ironically, the website changed to just a simple countdown that ran out on August 1st. And ever since then, you've been checking it every day, just because, knowing it wasn't going to change until August 1st. <laughs> and maybe it would have changed early, who knows? It wasn't going to change. You don't know that. <laughs> 
Now, the whole time, there's been a bunch of speculation, a lot of teasers on social media, shots of computer models and PCBs for things like the 100S, but nothing definitive. August 1st alone, I probably checked the website 10 separate times. That's being easy. Oh. Probably more like you sitting there spamming refresh every five seconds. I remember getting mad that it hit midnight on August 1st. And I was like, why isn't it up yet? You stayed up till midnight waiting? Yes. You are, you, you are weird. You're such a nerd. I have my interests. You have yours. Leave me alone. Love you. <laughs> Love you too. <laughs> Before we get into the revival of the brand, let's touch briefly on the history of Sun. Uh, Haley, you want to take the lead on this one? In 1963, this band called The Kingsmen from Oregon garnered national attention with their cover of the song Louie Louie. Wasn't there something actually kind of weird about that? Uh, yeah, actually. Their cover of Louie Louie became so popular that one gig, the band was taking requests, and they literally had to perform it for 90 minutes straight. I mean, this is like a two and a half minute song that has the same bass line. Uh, <laughs> after the episode, I'll show it to you. <laughs> But it was the same song over and over and over again for an hour and a half because everybody liked it so much. I mean, that's what I do when I find a new song that I like. I just have it on repeat until I get sick of it. <laughs> yeah, but I imagine it being a band and having to do that. Yeah, that would be horrible. You go to play live and everybody just wants to hear this one song. That's not even yours. It's just a cover. But they want to hear it over and over and over again. You're like, come on, let's play some original stuff. They're like, nah. What if they ever... I wonder if they ever played it again after that. Oh, definitely. It's like you hear stories about like uh, like Haley Williams from Paramore or that might be the... No, because she performs it now. I thought I read that like she got sick of performing Misery Business. What is it? There's a... I think it's Amity Affliction that literally just got tired of playing songs from the Chasing Ghosts album. Mm -hmm. They were just done with it and they're like, we're not playing any more stuff from Chasing Ghosts. But that's what they were famous for, just like the Kingsmen. Like, Louie Louie is what brought them fame. Now, the bass player from this band was called Norm Sunholm, and he had an issue with his bass rig simply being too quiet for the larger and larger venues the Kingsmen were being asked to play. For reference, around this time, a Fender bassman was sitting at about 50 watts while the Ampeg SBTCL classic bass amplifier produced in 1969 and still in use today, pushes 300 watts. So Norm gets with his brother Conrad, and he goes, Hey, make me something with some real power behind it. Conrad uses two Dynaco Hi-Fi amplifier kits, originally designed for Hi-Fi stereo systems, and combines them to make the precursor of the Sun Concert Bass. Sun's popularity begins to get larger and larger, exploding during the late 60s and early 70s, as the reliable, extremely loud, clean amplifiers. They basically market themselves as a backline solution. You're a band that travels like a long distance to play a large show. Instead of shipping your studio gear over to the show, you buy or rent some sun equipment and get yourself the power to play a large venue with little hassle. Countless bands take on the use of sun equipment, including Mountain, The Who, Jimi Hendrix Experience, and many others. So Sun eventually gets sold from Conrad Sunholm to the Hartzell Corporation. The company's CEO, Bill Hartzell, introduces some new models like the Beta Lead, but unfortunately passes away in a plane crash, and the, band, and the brand goes dormant. 
For a short while in the 90s, Fender buys Sun and attempts to revive the brand, but the models are vastly different than what they were seeking to revive, resulting in a relative retail flop. The brand officially dies out in the early 2000s. For more info on the history of Sun as it was, check out episode 31. But we're not here to talk about history. We're here to talk about what's new. So how did this Sun revival come about? It presumably starts with James Lebihan, founder of Mission Engineering. Mission Engineering isn't necessarily one of the largest brands in the guitar industry, but they do seem to make quite a bit of expression and volume pedals that I see all over people's boards, in addition to some pedal power supplies, speaker cabinets, powered monitors, and full-range, full-response amplifiers. I was curious about Mission Engineering because I have never heard of them before. You ever seen when we're looking at, actually, for those of you at home, uh, one of the games that Haley and I play ourselves is pulling up pictures of pedal boards and me <laughs> seeing how many she can identify. But you ever seen the things that look sort of like a crybaby wah, but they've got that big M on them? Yeah, yeah. That's mission engineering. Okay. They mostly make peripherals like that. Nothing really tone shaping, if that makes sense. So according to Sun's website... James assembled a crack team of professionals to revive the brand. They licensed it from Fender, and with their approval, but still presumably separate from Fender, according to their website. Their goal here seems to be to recreate the classic Sun amplifier circuits and re-release them to the world, seemingly almost exactly as they were when they originally released. Sun says that they have factories in Washington, California, and Missouri, California also being the same area that Mission Engineering has their facility, making it pretty likely that the two brands are sharing a headquarters. As of right now, we really don't have much to go on in terms of the logistics or the R&D behind the new Sun brand, as I haven't seen any interviews, articles, or behind-the-scenes pieces about the revival, but I'm sure those are yet to come. So, the moment we've all been waiting for. The product line. We can talk all day about the history or how it happened, but what really matters is what they're bringing back and how they're doing it. Full disclosure, Haley and I have probably spent a couple hours talking about this beforehand. This isn't the first time that we're seeing it, and barring any new information, our opinions are pretty well set, I think. So what do you want to talk about first? The good or the bad? Let's start things on a high note. Let's talk about their beta series first. Was that a pun? High note? You would find a pun in that. <laughs> the beta line, for me, is probably what I'm most excited for. It's definitely uh, the most that you talk about. Oh yeah, 100%. I'm nearly obsessed with this. The original beta lead was one of Sun's most popular amplifiers, which is unique because it's an entirely solid-state amp release during the Hard Soul era. Features of the beta lead include the fact that it's a full 100-watt amplifier. It's the most powerful of their reissues. It's got two channels, just like the original. Both of these channels on the beta lead are exactly the same. They've got controls for drive, three-band EQ, genuine spring reverb, level, and a master volume. Why would it have two channels that are exactly the same? So the point of the beta lead having those two separate channels was that it was twofold. The beta lead had two separate effects loops, one for each channel, as well as a master effects loop, and then you could also blend these channels together. So if you wanted, you know, a high gain signal on one and a clean on the other for some clarity, kind of like when we talked about wet-dry wet rigs, 
This was the point of having those two channels. There's no different inputs. There's no high gain channel, low gain channel. They're both the same. That way you can blend them together at the end and control the overall volume with the master volume. Okay. The beta lead only has a four ohm speaker output, which is not too bad considering it's solid state. You could likely run it into an eight ohm cab and not have any issues on like a tube amp. It sells for 799 bucks brand new for the full 100 watt head, but you can also spend $699 and you can get just a preamp version, similar to the whole Hillbish thing that was going on. We'll talk about that in a minute. This line also includes a bass series with the same features and prices, but it's lacking a reverb. The original beta lead was largely the same as the reissue. The beta bass is actually only a few capacitors that you could swap from the beta lead version, once again, sans the reverb. If you're curious at how it sounds, I actually built my own all-solid-state clone of the Beta Lead. It's a little stripped down, it's only a single channel, and it lacks the reverb, but the circuit is exactly the same otherwise. I am a thief, but an honest one. Uh, when I was building this project, I actually contacted Chris from Sparkbox FX, who built my Model T clone, and I asked permission to steal his idea in terms of the power section. Unfortunately, I'm not making them for sale or providing a kit or anything, but if you guys want to build one yourself, it's relatively easy to figure out, and it only costs maybe $400 in parts total. I just need to give a big shout out to Chris again. I'm sure you remember me sending him videos and stuff in the middle of the night like, hey, something's going wrong with it. It's making clicking <laughs> noises. It's whining something. What am I doing wrong? But he was super kind. He sat there and walked me through every step of it. He's great. If you guys want to support a small builder, check out Sparkbox Effects on Instagram. He makes some pretty cool stuff. In my opinion, the Beta Lead is probably the most versatile of the Sun Sounds that we've got on deck today. Its stock clean tone with all the knobs at noon is pretty woolly and mid-forward. Classic Sun Sound. thicker and less glassy than what I'm used to hearing. Yeah, it's definitely different than your standard like stock Fender clean tone, but if we scoop the mids a bit, boost the bass just a hair and the treble quite a bit more, you can quickly approach pretty usable Fender style cleans without issue. sound a little more better, a little more normal for you? Yeah, it scratched an itch in my brain that I did not know I had. Well, we're about to ruin that itch. Oh boy. So it is a sun amp. We all want to know how it sits with gain, obviously. And I'm actually pleasantly surprised by this guy. It's probably one of the most gain-heavy sun circuits out there, letting you approach an extremely usable metal tone without even needing any external pedals.
you thought I wouldn't like this? It, it's a little noisy, but it's not high-pitched or anything, so it doesn't bother me. Actually, I really like that sound. Yeah, a lot of people do. I mean, the Sun Beta Lead is the amp of choice for the guitars for the Melvins. It shaped a generation of doom. In fact, I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. Kurt Cobain actually used a Sun Beta Lead on some of his tours. I think I read that somewhere, too, which kind of surprised me. Now, why is Sun reviving the Beta Lead so important? There's a few reasons. Modern recreations of the Beta Lead are very hard to come by and expensive. If you want the full amplifier, you've got the Hilbish Beta Amplifier 200, which goes for $1,200 brand new. It's got similar features as the original Beta Lead. The only thing that it's really lacking is reverb. If you want to go a little cheaper, you can get the Beta Preamp from Hilbish for 800 bucks still more expensive than the Sun reissue preamp. Your only real option here, if you don't want to shell out major cash, is some preamp pedals. One example is the Berserker Prehistoric Dog. Goes for 180 bucks or so used. He's a pretty small builder, so I'm not sure if he's still making them. You've also got the Red Fang Night Destroyer, which is $365, also made by Hilbish. And lastly, you've got the Aeon FX Beta Pre. Now, this one is cheating a little bit. It's $16 just for the circuit board. You gotta source all your own parts, your own enclosure, your own knobs, and build it yourself. I've done it before. It's somewhat difficult of a build. I wouldn't necessarily start with that. On the used market, depending on condition and whether you get a head or a combo, you're looking at around $700 to $1,200 for an actual vintage beta lead. The thing that I think that they did really well here is stuck to the original and they made the price extremely competitive. If you're looking to upgrade from a starter amp to your first, dare I say, real amplifier, this is about what you pay for like a mid-level tube amp, and it's still around the same price, maybe a little less than what you pay for a used, genuine beta lead. All in all, it's extremely exciting, and truth be told, I'm definitely going to be picking one up. Why'd you look at me when you said that? Well, because it was a statement, not a question. Mm. You know, this is like them releasing a new Metal Gear game. I suppose. This is that level. I suppose. Of you literally do not have room in here for another amp, barely another pedal. We will mini make pedal. room. Are you going to get rid of one? Why would you say that? <laughs> Come on. This is an intelligent show. We talk about intelligent things. That was not very intelligent. That was a very low IQ statement. Wow, that was mean. Saying that we're going to get rid of an amp is mean. I mean, you're stacking them up like Lego bricks in here. We don't have kids. These are basically my children. What about the dog? She, her too. Wow. Her too. She I don't know. Doing... I feel like if there was a fire, you'd be grabbing some of these amps before you grab the dog. The dog's helping me. <laughs> we're strapping amps to her. She's making trips too. So, the beta line is a great option. It's what I'm really excited about. But in this revival, they've done something that straight up just does not make sense to me. The 100S and the 200S. Reviving these amps isn't what I'm questioning. It's integral to the DNA of Sun. They're loud, simple, clean amplifiers. The reason that Sun came around and that people love the brand in the first place. Before we get into discussing it, let's talk about the features of these amps. They're both 65 watts of output, which is extremely loud for a tube amp. They've got 4 ohm and 8 ohm switchable speaker outputs, high and low inputs, 12AX7 preamp tubes, 
KT-88 power amp tubes with Dynaco transformers, just like the originals, GZ-34 rectifier tubes. Where it gets a little different comes to the controls. The 200S has controls for volume, treble, and bass with a high boost and low boost switch, while the 100S has controls for volume, treble, bass, and a contour knob. Each of them also include a polarity switch in addition to the usual power and standby. These amps are extremely simple. What you see is what you get. They're just very clean, minimally tweakable, high output tube amplifiers. While I don't have an original, I do have an amp sim from Amplitube of a Sun 1200S, a similar circuit from the same time frame. I've disengaged the additional tremolo, reverb, and mid-boost controls, so you're hearing the core circuit of this series. That's really about it with this amplifier. It's sort of a one-trick pony. Um, I do like the little bit of breakup that it does get. It sounds very uh, clean fendery to me. It's a sort of breakup that I really kind of strive after for my clean tone. But unfortunately, that's all it does. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think it sounds really nice. Do you like the the clean sound? <laughs> um my question is though you're kind of giving it a little little bit of crap maybe saying like it's a one-trick pony i mean isn't that what you have like all these different types of effect pedal effect pedals for 100 percent, and i don't doubt that it would take pedals very well my problem is not with the circuit itself like i get it that's what sun's known for some people just want a clean loud amp like the the old Sovtech mig series of amps what throws me off is the price. Both the 100S and the 200S reissues are slated to sell for $3,200. Okay, that is a lot. <laughs> exactly. It's a lot for a one-trick pony like that. But it does sound really good. It sounds great. Don't get me wrong. But you look at something, what's something similar in that price bracket? Like here, we've got the Rev Generator 120. It is literally actually a little less than double the power but it's got four separate channels, including a clean and different varieties of crunch and high gain. It's got a headphone output. It's got a three-band EQ for each channel, aggression switches, onboard reverb, an onboard gate. It's got two notes loaded into it for cabinet simulation. There's so many features on this thing, and it's 200 bucks more than the, the Sun reissues. What are the originals going for, though? That's the thing that really bugs me about this. Uh, on Reverb, there's very few of them, but there's one listing for a Sun 100S from 1965 that includes its matching cabinet that's going for 2200 bucks. Uh, the 200S, just the head itself, is going for 1300 bucks, much less than the reissues are going for. What's really weird to me, too, is that the 100S actually includes uh, tremolo and spring reverb, while the 
100s reissue doesn't i'm curious why they didn't stay the same there but that's the reason that this is upsetting to me i honestly don't think it'll fare very well when it hits the market it's extremely simple i mean we've got the origin 20 here like you heard before when we were talking about the jtm studio it's a reissue but it's got modern features it's got things that make it worth it at modern gigs you have a pa system that pa is literally able to take like pedals, pedal board amplifiers, and boost them to the levels that you need to play a show. You really don't need these super loud tube amps. The people that are going to be buying this, in my mind, are die-hard Sun fans that aren't even looking for a Doom amp, just a vintage-style Sun. Not to mention they have the money and the space for something like this. These amps are huge. It's extremely simple, and at this price, it's got to be one of those you know, destination amps, like bucket list things. Somebody's like, yes, this is the final amp that I want to own. This is my tone. Collectors. Collectors, but how big is the intersection of the Venn diagram of people who love Sun this much and also have the money to buy this? I mean, don't you think they're trying to open to a new market with this revival? They have to be. I mean, the original Sun amplifiers came out in 1963. Even if you were like, as young as you could be starting guitar, like 15 years old or so, you would be 75 this year. If you, you're like, they're not going for a nostalgia market because the people that are nostalgic about these amps are really getting up there in age. I don't know if they're really looking for a new amp. They could still be dooming. But that's the thing. The 100S and the 200S are oh, very right, much so yeah. not doom amps. That's true. They're just very loud, very clean. And in today's gigging scene, you don't really need that. It's bound to make someone happy. I mean, someone's going to buy it and be over the moon. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, if you gave me one of these, I wouldn't have any problems with it. Well, of I would course definitely you wouldn't. Play. <laughs> like a little gear goblin. <laughs> You're just mad because I called you a breakfast goblin earlier today. <laughs> Egg taxes are theft. They go to the dog now. I don't take them anymore. doesn't matter. Egg wow. taxes are theft. Okay. Anyway... I I just don't see the need for like a super loud, super clean amp. Even if you did give it to me, I mean, I'd have to play this in the middle of the day just so I don't get a noise complaint. Isn't it really loud? Yeah. You can't play it at night. Oh, okay. I misunderstood what you said for some reason. No, you're good. I... They have a few other offerings. Um, they've got a 1x12 and a 2x12 powered full range monitor. They're going for $17.99 and $22.99 respectively, which is... Extremely expensive for a powered full-range monitor. They've got 1x12 and 2x12 unpowered full-range monitors and a 2x12 and a 2x15 guitar and bass speaker cabinet, which are both, you know, pretty nice. Um, Sun says that their speakers are being built by either Eminence or Jensen, with the Eminence speakers being made in the USA and Jensen speakers being made in Italy. Sun claims that these speakers are made to their own specs, just like their original cabinets, but if I'm going to be honest, I'm really not that crazy about Sun Cabinets. Like, they're well built, but paired with their already mid-forward and muddy amps, it makes your tone very wooly. So, for reference, here's the beta lead again, running through an impulse response of an orange 4x12 like I usually prefer.
And here's the same amp, same settings, ran through an impulse response of an actual Sun Beta Lead cabinet that would have shipped with the combo version of the amp. It's just not a cabinet that really jumps out at me. It's really muffled. I didn't really like it either. It kind of sounds like when I shut the door when you're playing too loud. I'm in the next room. 100%. I mean, I'm a metal player. I usually prefer Celestion V30s. They're like the the speaker for metal. The Sun speaker cabinets and their speakers really just aren't something that I'm too crazy about. The last point for me is, curiously, this revival doesn't include arguably Sun's most famous amp, the Model T. Currently, used Model Ts are going for anywhere from three grand to 6,500 bucks, which is steep for any amplifier, not to mention a vintage amp that may have problems that need to be addressed by a tech. Fender had reissued the Model T before, but it sounded and functioned nothing like the original Model T. It was much closer to a modern, high-gain 5150. Do you think maybe they haven't just introduced it yet? Announced it? Well, in the FAQ section of Sun's website, they claim that the Model T is very large, very heavy, and very expensive, <laughs> and that they plan to produce limited editions of both the Model T and the Coliseum, but one of their first amplifiers to be affordable to the working musician. Beta lead, they definitely hit the mark on that, but the 100S and the 200S? $3,200 for an amplifier is not very affordable, Especially considering that they're even more expensive than the originals. I, I just don't get it. I'm wondering, do you think that, so you know how the Sun Amps are, you know, very sought after and very high priced when you go and look for them on whatever you look for them on, eBay? Yeah. Do you think that they'll stay that way when these amps, like, you're able to purchase them? Or do you think they'll get more expensive because people are like, hmm... I want the original original. I think we'll have to wait and see until they actually start shipping and we get gut shots of the amps. If the amps are made exactly the same way as they seem to be as the originals, then I think that the original amplifiers will sort of go down in value just because of the fact mm -hmm. that if you give me the choice between a brand new beta lead that's manufactured exactly the same as the original beta lead, I'm going to pick the brand new one just for the fact that it has a warranty and for the fact that older amplifiers tend to need capacitors replaced. They can have all ki kinds of problems that need to be addressed by a tech. That I doesn't see sound them. like the collector in you. It doesn't, but I mean, you always know, you know me, I'm more about function over form. Yeah. I would rather have a newer one than an older one just because of the inherent risk of getting an older one. Now, if they're not... I was just curious if, you know, people ended up not liking them, they'd be even more expensive, or that if this does in fact introduce more people to Sun, they're like, oh wow, an old one. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. Now, if the new amplifiers are not the same, or they're like lower quality, or just sound completely different, kind of like Fender's original reissue does, 
And then I think the prices will stay the same, maybe go up a little bit because the attraction to the brand. But we'll see. I feel like they're going to be pretty similar to the originals just based on the team behind it and how much they're talking it up. I'm pretty optimistic about the whole thing. Hey, I'm optimistic enough to pick up a beta lead at least. Hales, do you remember that show, Destroy, Build, Destroy? Honestly, no, I never watched it. What? It was, uh, uh, it was on Cartoon Network. It was, okay, it was like a game show, right? The whole concept was that they would take something normal, like a car or a boat or something, and they would blow it up or they would drop it off a mountain or something in the beginning, and then two teams of three kids would have to take the parts from that wreckage and create a machine to complete different challenges. In the end, whoever lost, their machine would get blown up. That definitely sounds like something you would watch, and that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, it was on Cartoon Network. It was definitely pretty extreme for Cartoon Network. Either way, there's this dude that hosted it. His name was Andrew WK. And all I ever knew him from was Destroy, Build, Destroy. But apparently he was a very successful solo guitarist, vocalist, and instrumentalist that released a few different records. What's actually really cool about him was uh, Andrew WK got with ESP and made two guitars custom for him. One is a tacos guitar, which <laughs> is literally in the shape of a taco. It's got a single humbucker, a volume knob, a tunomatic bridge, and uh, it says party hard in addition to oh tacos my. on the fret inlays. Honestly, seems really uncomfortable. You'd have, like, the top of the shell and the toppings, like, digging into your stomach. Oh, yeah, it does not look fun. Uh, he also had a pizza guitar made, which looks even worse. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, it it looks okay, but, like, it th that pizza is stabbing you straight in the ribcage. Oh, yeah, you gotta play these things standing up. I mean, it, it makes me think of, uh, it, like, why not make it, like, a flying V, where the, you know, the center part of the pizza slice is pointing towards the neck and the crust mm. part is pointing towards See, the rear. See, that would just be too simple, it, it seems. It would make more sense. I it, love that it just says pizza across the fretboard. My question is, why did they do a neon green headstock on the pizza one? <laughs> it's to match the bell peppers on the pizza. No, those are not yeah. the same color. No, this, he, this looks very 2000s random aesthetic to me. <laughs> Especially the the weird power stance he's got going on in this photo. <laughs> <laughs> the hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you combine that with the uh, Dan Electro food series pedals, and you've got a pretty tasty rig. Oh. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> you know, right now I'm wearing my son t-shirt to celebrate this uh, revival. Otherwise, I would feel wrong if I wasn't. But... If you guys want a t-shirt that shows the world that you spend an hour every week listening to one of the most annoying people and one of the most upset at puns people in the world <laughs> listening to them talk about guitars, you guys could get your very own Pedals and Podcast. <laughs> wow. English is hard today. You could get your very own Pedals and Pickups Podcast t-shirt. If you want to win one for free, go ahead and shoot me a DM on any one of my socials or an email and enter to win. If you want to buy one, you don't want to roll your 
Wow, English is bad today. You want to buy one? You don't want to roll the dice? Try your luck. Maybe you should just take over for this. You don't want to try your luck? You can head over to our website, pedalsandpickups.com. You can click on merch and you can buy your own T-shirt today. I think there's also a hoodie on there and even a sticker. You don't even know what's in your own shop? I do. I'm you just trying to make it sound casual. You've Come just on. got sun on the brain. Oh yeah, definitely I do. Sun on the brain, that's, I'm pretty sure that could be considered some sort of affliction. <laughs> Death. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you guys want to talk, you want advice, you want to chat about anything that's on your mind, reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. I love interacting with you guys. I love hearing about the projects you've got going on, giving you advice for specific tones you're looking for makes my day every time when you guys hit me up. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. You can go to our website, you can click on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. Otherwise, it's been an awesome week getting to sit down and hang out with you guys again. I hope Haley enjoyed it too. As always, except the puns. I'm glad that you're being more of a regular... Uh, co-host on here yeah, i'm not even a regular listener wow that hurt <laughs> wow that was deep you guys heard that that was like a you guys hear that sound that was my heart shattering your own wife doesn't even support your podcast what does this world come to i support it in other ways i'm talking on it right now see but you don't even listen to why would it? i go back and listen to myself talk okay now you're making me uncomfortable because i do that yeah that's weird <laughs> Anyway, we'll see you guys next week. This is Haley and the Gear Goblin signing off. <laughs> what? You heard me. All right. As always, take care. <laughs>